Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Creators with AI podcast. I'm your host, David, and this is a show where we share insights about the future of artificial intelligence and how it will affect the lives of people working in the creative industries. In today's episode, I chat with Sharon Matthew, CEO of AI Tech UK and Smart Ethics. Among other things, we discuss the importance of ethics and human rights in the field of AI, highlighting the need for a universal moral code and consideration of human rights as foundational principles in AI development. Sharon delves into the potential implications of AI on personal data and society, discussing human biases towards AI, the unsettling feeling of lack of control when decisions are made by computers, and the potential life-saving benefits of autonomous vehicles. Sharon introduces the Smart Ethics Framework, designed to make AI technology accessible and understandable for everyone, and discusses potential scenarios of AI shaping society, the need for a robust ethical framework, AI governance, and AI's potential implications on societal wealth disparity. Sharon Matthew is a recognized AI leader and leading AI ethicist in the UK who's recognized for delivering national-level strategy and engagements. He's published several thought-provoking papers and is listed as a top leader on several lists, including 60 leaders in AI, Top 5 Asians in Tech, and Data IQ's Top 100 Leaders. He's an award-winning CEO of AI Tech UK, where he's been responsible for delivering the national AI strategy and democratizing AI awareness with UK businesses since 2018. He's a Tech for Good champion and a pioneer in the space of ethics and sustainability management in digital transformation. In addition to all that, he's a founder, CEO, and serial entrepreneur with a deep-rooted passion for wider AI awareness, impact, ethics, and intellectual privacy. In his time at IBM as an AI expert in the UK Global Business Services team, Sharon developed special skills in transforming businesses into cognitive enterprises. Sharon's an AI strategist and board advisor for West Yorkshire Combined Authority, and also the chief AI advisor for ambitious SMEs, deep tech startups, and the UK AI policy team with a mission to disrupt the AI disruption. As an accomplished public speaker, AI ethicist, and evangelist, Sharon promotes thought-promoking ideas, shares his technical knowledge, and advises on best practices. Sharon founded the idea of intellectual privacy, proposing the sanction of new human rights to intelligence. To inspire and educate others on this evolving topic, he produced a documentary about intellectual privacy, which can be found in full on his website at publicintelligence.org. Links to that video and Sharon's profile and social media will be in the show notes and on our website at creativeswith.ai. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Sharon. Maybe if we just start off by giving people a little bit of background on you and the sorts of things that you do and that sort of thing, just so that they understand where you're coming from and give the conversation a bit of context. Just as a quick intro, I'm Sharon Matthew, CEO and founder of AI Tech UK and a very special entity called uh, Smart Ethics. My journey has been quite fascinating to AI and ethics. I come from an engineering background two decades ago. I built my first robot with the web camera to detect intruders using image processing, and it only worked for a minute. And <laughs> that was almost like an end of a dream where, oh God, I want to do robotics and AI, and this is so difficult. Then for two decades, I ended up spending my time in IT space working with uh, large corporate companies, including likes of uh, British Telecom, NHS, worked with Microsoft, and I'm also an ex-IBM AI lead. So I had a journey from almost building hardware-led robotics and AI sort of tech to getting into IT. And with the onset of cloud and AI recently, I would say recently, I would say 2017, it's when it when it just became almost, yeah, AI is the next hot thing, especially on cloud with the power and of GPUs and cloud capability and data capability. It just became a no-brainer. It's just like I felt like my these dots connected and I felt like I could just take this technology and drive, uh, drive with it. So yeah, it's been a fascinating journey to AI. And because I was also pioneering in the space of AI, I realized the elements of non-functional requirements, right, which we often, and most of the tech businesses, they already know these non-functional requirements such as security, reliability, high availability. We can define this, 
requirements and practically apply them. That that's when the penny dropped and it almost was almost like a light bulb moment. This is back in um, before COVID, so 2019-20. I was like, why are we struggling to define ethics? And at that moment, I was like, someone needs to do this. Someone needs to define ethics almost like a practical guideline or a moral code that we could define in our, you know, digital transformation journey. And that led to my my almost invention of smart ethics, I would say. I love the term smart ethics. And um, and, and we'll 100% we'll get to that. But I'm stuck on why did your bot only work for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, why did it stop yeah, working? Uh, it took me a year to build that robot. It was built from scratch. Like we had to write programming, uh, microcontroller programming in assembly language, integrated through a, a, a really long cable that goes to a computer to process the image on the computer. Then it comes back to the robot and then controls the sensors to move around. It was for a graduate. Oh, at that level, uh, it was almost rocket science. Technology was not readily available as we have today. You know, we we are absolutely lucky to have technologies like generative AI, cognitive services, cloud capability. Just get it in a second. Back in the yeah, Raspberry yeah, Pi, absolutely. We had nothing. We were we built our own Raspberry Pi, s- similar to Raspberry Pi uh, motherboard and 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 the whole adapters and everything from scratch. So yeah, after doing all sorts of combination, making some prayers, it worked for a minute. <laughs> awesome. And it worked right at the time when examiner was like, okay, give us a demo. All right, give us a minute. We're going to reset it and we're going to try again. And it worked wow. for like a few few seconds. And then, yeah, that's it. You guys passed. We got the highest score. That's the most impressive part because in my experience, a demo never works when you need it to when Trust it's me, live. It didn't work after that. We left the left the exam hall, went out to show it to our friends, and it didn't even start. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, okay, yeah, but it worked when it needed to, and that was the most that was the most important bit. Yeah, you should pass just yeah, for that. That's it. <laughs> awesome. Okay, good. Now we, we we sort of closed the loop on that one, right? So let's get into the meat of this. AI ethics. It's a big subject, I think. There's a lot of different ways to approach it. I've been talking about it sort of around the edges on the podcast with many guests along the way. So so you're the first person to actually come in who's a kind of an AI, speci- uh, sorry, an ethics specialist. So that's going to be, I think, a little bit interesting. So maybe a good place to start. I mean, what are the different aspects I, I, because ethics, I think, isn't just a single topic. I think there's a bunch of things that, that go into ethics as a whole. So maybe if you could think about what that is, like what are the different parts that make up kind of the ethics discussion that you think maybe people miss sure. or that we should think sure. about? I spent an extensive time, we're talking from 2019 onwards, uh, along with global experts to define what ethics really means. And when we often talk about ethics, usually... I don't know if you heard of this, but they say, whose ethics? Which ethics? Oh, ethics of where? Which country? Which, 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 which tribe? Yeah, 100%. And it's something I talk about a lot. We don't already agree on how we should do things. So you've got, you've got kind of the Western liberal democratic set of ethics. You've got the maybe North American set of ethics. You've got kind of a, a Chinese-Russian, the capitalistic ethics. You've got yeah, Middle absolutely, Eastern. Absolutely. Yeah, so... All these different gradients. So yeah, 100%, we, we talk about that a lot. So ethics becomes extremely challenging, but we have to understand that when we are building AI and trying to make AI ethical, this AI is almost abiding to a global ethics standards, right? Which means if you're building something in Silicon Valley, it will be used by someone in Europe, Middle East, Singapore, so on and so forth, right? And all the way to Sydney, which means it becomes the innovators or designers or even someone who's building that concept or idea, it becomes their responsibility for it to be ethical on a, on a global front or on a global level, which means there is a, there's a huge need for something like a universal moral code, right? 
and that's that's what we forget and what happens is we end up focusing too much on framework a framework b framework a has five things framework b has 10 things so what do we do how about you do the 10 things that actually matters to the rest of the world as well which means no matter where you go you will be ethical rest, respecting you know their ethics and the global ethics which means instead of taking a bottom-up approach we take a top-down approach and and sometimes that's easier to do and if we do that no matter where you go even though you're from silicon valley and trying to sell it in singapore it will work it will be accepted in singapore and that's the approach that i've suggested in smart ethics and coming back to the core you know how do you define ethics we did a lot of research and found out that first and foremost that every framework in the world should and must apply is that human rights that human rights becomes the primary foundation because AI is just not uh, any ordinary technology. It is a very people-centric technology because it's playing with a very intimate concept, which is people's intelligence. AI hasn't got its own intelligence, so it's playing with a very sensitive entity or concept or almost very personal thing that's very close to every people on this planet, which is our intelligence. Which means the key and the most important stakeholder when it comes to ethics is people. And for people, the most important thing is human rights. So if you if you just look at the lineage and the dependency of ethics and try to connect these dots, you human rights becomes the foundational and the core principle and the first thing that you should consider. By building this AI, am I breaching any human rights, any privacy issues? And this whole human rights and privacy, it's a, it's a pillar or a chapter in its own, <laughs> in, in its own context. It, the depth is so huge. Yeah. yeah, We can 100%. go into details of that, but that is just the first part. Then the next part, in my opinion, and what we found out through our research is we often forget why we're building this. So the next part, which most of the framework often forget, these are global frameworks, by the way, they often forget that we don't even think about the intention and purpose of why we're building this new AI. Now, intention or purpose could be defined in many ways. It could be as simple as, hey, I'm just doing this for fun, right, to see if I can build this Rubik's Cube solving AI. Is there any benefit of that? Probably not. Right. The next thing could be, am I doing this for exploration or research? Right. There is a potential benefit of taking that approach. Right. Let's do that. The next one, which we often see is um, as an augmentation approach. So my intention is to augment someone. And with augmentation comes a couple of other things. And this is where it gets really tricky. If you're augmenting an authorized user or stakeholder, then it's a good augmentation. But if you're augmenting someone who's not authorized or hasn't got the intellectual authority or control or manage or, or ownership of that risk, you're creating almost a, a automation tool, right? That makes someone else powerful. And that's where the problem starts from a societal point of view. What would be an example of that? A good example is making driverless taxi, right? And anyone right. can go and add to basket 10 driverless taxis without having a driving license or a taxi license, which means there's a potential risk of teenager with good amount of cash just saying, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have three of them and I'm going to deploy this on the street. Do you even know how to drive? <laughs> right? So y you can see right. how, you know, this is an extreme example, but that is, that, that's an example of how AI augmentation tool without authority or license given to someone could cause some disruption. Extreme example is Uber currently doesn't own any taxis. They subscribe and pay for driving intelligence. So if they say, hey, I'm going to turn all my taxis that currently I don't own into a driverless taxi and I will own that, that's where it causes a huge societal disruption because they technically don't own 4 million taxis. They subscribe to their time and money and, uh, sorry, uh, in 
intelligence basically and they're paid in money so you can see how it can create a huge disruption when we don't put certain intellectual authority or ownership in place so that is the intention what are you building why are you building then i, I yeah. kind of eluded the third point here which is the disruption it causes so the third point which most of the framework often do not uh, consider is the disruption management element so when we create new AI technology, there's an element of a shift of intelligence or shift of that knowledge or capability from human to machine. And very similar to GDPR and data privacy, right? When, when someone takes your data, my data, and processes and stores it, they have that responsibility. So what happens when our intelligence is moved from us to machine? And what we're saying is, it's not a bad thing to do, but at the same time, you are responsible for being accountable in that space, thinking about the risk of that shift, thinking about potential consequences of that shift, and thinking about the loss of skills and opportunities that it creates as well. So you have to put a positive lens around it and see, can this be made better? Can this be managed as a positive change? Can I create more opportunities and more education around it instead of disrupting it? So it's almost yeah. trying to use that shift in a positive way instead of, and at the same time, being aware of the right. risk of the negative impact. It's difficult, isn't it? Because if you think about the dual, a lot of people talk about the dual use problem and, you know, particularly in AI, because it's, but it's like with anything. Right, like we have knives at home yeah. that we use to cut food and to put, you know, I don't know, butter on our toast and everything else. But most of the time, those things are used for positive things. But they can also stab yeah. and kill someone. Cars are the same thing. Cars get us around most of the time. Hugely, insanely dangerous. I ride a motorcycle every day. Even yeah. more dangerous, but it's more fun. So <laughs> there's there's a huge there's a bigger upside, but then there's also a potentially larger downside yeah. as well. And I think for me, it feels like that a lot of the discussion around AI, not just in, in, not just considering ethics, but also considering not just the way the tools work, but it's everybody holds AI to a much higher standard than they do other humans, which I find really, really interesting. And I want to get a psychologist on to talk yeah. about the psychology of that because I'm sure there's some some really complicated human psychology in there. But um, but I know what you mean. And how easy or difficult do you think that that step is? Because we had huge unintended consequences with social media that I think people never even Absolutely. considered. It was just, hey, it's great. People can go and talk to each other. And it's spun out into this thing where we now have, you know, bad actors influencing yeah, behavior yeah, yeah. in other countries. And, you know, how easy or difficult do you think that is in practice to do, I guess? Going back to the first point, AI is very intimate technology. Very similar to social media, as you said, you know, it became very personal at one point where our personal data was being used as data or product, in fact, without naming the big brands who exploited that. But we know. We yeah, know who they are. they are. In a similar way, we'll get to that point of acceptance where we will become, as human beings, more aware that our intelligence is a product that is being used. And we should be protecting our intelligence, just like we protect our data and identity, right? We, we, are, we don't have the awareness right now that if I wear, you know, this HoloLens that can track my iris, the amount of information that you can track from your iris tracking is insane. It's almost like insight into your inner portal of inner, or your inner being. Like your emotional, it's like your emotional window just being opened to technology, giving that, you know, insights into when you get excited, when you're lying, when, and all this subconscious uh, thinking gets captured by technology, which is very, very, you know, invasive. So what we need to do is, as, as a community and as, as, as everyone, we need to be, become more aware of what does our personal intelligence really mean what it is and how it's being given away to this technology and what's the consequences of that we don't know the consequences yet we're still figuring out that oh wait a minute when i click my behavior 
is being captured. Not my data, my behavior, what I like. I like strawberries and it knows that and I'm going to be you know, profiled for that, right? In a similar way, when our intelligence is given away, we need to become more conscious of it and it will take time. Another thing is, we humans are very biased. The list of cognitive biases that we have is just insane. And one of that is quite fascinating, is which is what we see with AI, right? We have almost zero tolerance when someone else, especially an AI or a bot, makes a wrong decision on our behalf. We haven't accepted that yet. I would say, yeah, or I would say driverless cars. As, yeah, go on. Driverless yeah, cars yeah. are more safer than humans driving, but we haven't we haven't accepted 100%. that. And it's interesting because you said when it makes a wrong decision, but then you get into this is slightly more philosophical, but you get into the sort of Buddhist concept mm -hmm. of emptiness, because a decision is just a decision. Whether that decision is right or wrong depends on yeah. who you are, and what the circumstances are. So there's a huge. I, I think it relates to the lack of control. I think people like to. You know, there, there's a certain amount of control that comes when a human makes a decision. And I don't think people like not having some sort of control or knowing that some other human has control, even though, like you said, in most cases, the computers probably make a better decision most yeah, of the time. Um, <laughs> and you, we're going to see this. I don't, I, I do a lot through some of the smart city stuff work that I've done in the past. I've worked a lot with looking at autonomous vehicles and the trials and things like that. And you're absolutely right. Broadly speaking, they're way safer than yeah. human drivers. And what we, nobody believes that because what we haven't seen yet is a whole transport system run by just autonomous vehicles. So if you had a system that had, because it's the humans that are the problem and it's the humans that make the mistakes. And if you had a system, I think, I think there's some towns being built. There, there, there's a few all over the world, and somebody will probably point out that they haven't been built yet. But I'm pretty sure there's a few entire towns that are being built with, you know, to test all the IoT functionality, but also, you know, what is an actual autonomous kind of uh, transport system look like? So if buses were autonomous, all the cars, all the taxis, all the everything. And, and how would that work? And how many accidents would you have? And that sort of thing. So it's going to be really interesting. But I saw some stat that said that if it was, if there were 14% of vehicles on the road were autonomous vehicles, that that would reduce the number of accidents and deaths on the road by 50%. I kind of agree with that. Uh, I had an incident a few weeks ago where police with siren on just got into uh, with blues and twos on got into this side of dual carriageway and everyone just went on the extreme left and as we do we all pulled out back into the the right lane and i got bumped by a guy trying to overtake me as soon as there was that free space so clear disruption was in my blind spot and uh i was like oh if it was driverless car we would have we would have both avoided this incident, or if it was a connected, yeah. you know, I don't know, ecosystem of, of you know cars, this would have been managed in a quite efficient manner. So I can see, and I totally am a big advocate of you know technology for for good and for creating a, a better planet and safer planet. But yeah, the opportunity of tech is just huge, huge. Yeah, it's huge. Right. Okay. Sorry, that was a little slight little diversion. So. I think we were talking about risk evaluation was sort of, or it was disruption management and then risk evaluation were, I, I think, where we left yeah. off. I see as for ethics, there is there are many frameworks, there are many schools of thought, there are different criterias. Some people, some framework have 10, 10 pillars and, and some have seven, some have three. Now, what we have done is we've kind of, looked at every framework and found out, you know, there's five things if we did that and understood it, we will be ethical. And and I'll explain why we should be ethical. But first and foremost, it's this five points. If you just understand that or make these five pillars core element of your AI governance and design process, you're good and you're globally aligned. So first one was rights and privacy. Next one was purpose realization defining what it why you or 
building this. Next one was disruption management. The fourth one is risk evaluation. Risk evaluation is is very similar to us doing a risk assessment before we do anything. Before we build a building, we do risk assessment. Before we run an event, we do risk assessment. But why don't we do that when we build software? <laughs> so in this case, AI. AI, as I said, it's such an intimate and, and so people people-centric innovation. We need to think about the impact of potential risk on people and the ecosystem and the other stakeholders that we haven't even thought of, the unintended consequences and unintended users. So risk evaluation really brings you into this new context of understanding, am I causing any global risk here by building a new tech, which means it could be inequality, for example. It could be societal or planetary level scale disruption. Jobs is a good example. But if I found found that a job could be displaced, how do I manage that as well? That that comes into the next pillar, which is accountability. So risk is not just about rights and and technical risk like bias and, and other stuff, but also is around things like cost of building the product and disrupting the product, cost from a sustainability point of view, the carbon footprint, for example, of your new AI product, all of that. This is all factored in in that risk assessment. And then once you find out that, oh, I have 10 potential risk, thing is most of the AI businesses, startups or innovators, they're not even thinking about this risk, let alone the accountability to mitigate that. That's why we put the last pillar, which is accountability. And it's just not accountability. It is accountability with an element of redesign, mitigating and fixing it. That's why the last pillar that I often emphasize a lot on is called uh, accountable redesign. So it's it's a full circle where you find out what what is the right thing to do, what you have done, what you have disrupted, what has potential risk and lastly how do i fix it so the last pillar becomes the key pillar to fix all of this and then start again so it becomes almost like a governance process and a methodology that i have researched over the last three years and this becomes like a process where if anyone applies this even at a simple level they are constantly building an an iterative ethical product and this could be applied by any company at any level. It could be from design all the way to product go live or after that as well. I like it. I think it's really interesting to to have sort of a, a set of questions, internal questions to ask all the way through. I was thinking when you were talking about risk evaluation that I think a lot of times risk evaluation is done. I, I do a lot of work with public sector and so we do a lot of risk evaluation and we consider a lot of edge cases in particular. I wonder in the corporate sort of private sector world, particularly around this, if it's, do you think that the reason maybe it isn't done as much is because it's too expensive? Or do you think it's just because doing that risk, this is a really cynical view, but it's almost if you do the risk assessment and you write it down and you acknowledge that that's there, then then you have some sort of liability for it. If, if it's written down and it goes wrong later and there's a lawsuit, then somebody says, oh, but you knew about this because it was in an email that you know you sent or you, you put it in your risk register. So they don't even want to write it down or even though they may think about it when they're in the shower, they would never write it down or anything. And it, it does, it, it creates that accountability, which is the next step. Do you think that that's, is it intentional? I guess, I, I guess my question is, 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 yeah, your thoughts on, do you think it's intentional or do you think it's accidental that they're just moving so quickly and that they're like, this is really cool and they just focus on the positives and, and they just want to get it out? Or is it a bit more sinister in that they, they you know, companies re- really just look at it and go, yeah, okay, somebody will use it for something bad, but we don't need to think about that yeah, right now. 100%. To answer that question, I would say we are building AI like we're building a classical traditional softwares, but AI needs different level of governance, which is why right now everyone is talking about it. Now, the biggest mistake or the the risk of not applying AI governance today is 
first of all, because there's no regulation, we are building AI like we're building software. And as I said, AI, the key stakeholder in AI is people, which means people will realize sooner or later, wait a minute, this is unethical. And that straight away just kills the business. So it's almost like finding that you build a data product and data privacy was breached. Straight away, no one's going to use that platform. Um, which is what happened with the leading social media platforms today. So minute anyone realizes that AI is unethical, that's it. That business is dead, gone. The startup is gone. That no one's going to use that platform. There's a, there's a stats that minute people realize that, oh, they lose trust on a particular product or a company, 65% to 70% of the customers, they just leave. So that's the amount of risk that businesses will take if they don't put AI governance today. The second thing is the AI compliance and governance space is so complicated. As I said, ethics, who's ethics? So ethics of you know one country, one region, one institute, what are you going to follow? So it's so confusing and everyone's saying almost the same thing, almost like everyone has their own commandments. But if you put everything together, there's only 10 commandments that you have to follow, right? So. What we, yeah. what, what's happening right now is no one has agreed to that 10 commandments. So with our smart ethics works, we, that's what we're trying to put together. Look, there's three there, there's five there, there's seven here. All together, there's only 10, right? Just follow this 10, you'll be all right, <laughs> no matter where you go. So we're trying to simplify ethics in, in that way. Lastly, yeah. Yeah. going back to your point of, yeah, let's make it quickly make fast, break fast, we'll see later. That's okay for certain type of software, right? Where the risk is low. But what happens is over the period of time, five, 10 years down the line, you will realize, oh my God, there's so many unintended risk to unintended users. And that at the end kills the business. And thing is, we know what it could be. It's just that we're not thinking proactively. And no one has that capacity right now or the foresight right now. And again, what we have tried to do through smart ethics is trying to give that foresight, you know, could this happen? Could that happen? You know, could could there be a risk of intellectual breach? Could there be a risk of this? Could there be a risk of someone getting extra unethical power by using AI over others? So these are the things that we have to think about it now because right now there's no regulation. I have a friend who says one, yeah. he quoted something very fascinating. It's like, there's no speed limit on Mars, right? Yeah. Love it. And and similarly, like if, if you're driving in a, in a desert for a safari, you will still put your windows up, <laughs> seatbelt, headlights at night. You will follow the general safety procedures. What I'm trying to say is right now, it's a bit of a Mad Max sort of set up when it yep. comes to AI, yep. like Wild West or Mad Max, whatever you want to call it. That doesn't mean you, you're going to build anything that is there to just take a very capitalistic or a very competitive approach. You still have to think about community because the, the key stakeholders, going back to the original point, is people. So you've got to have an element of communitarianism in, in, the, in the thinking and, and in the business approach as well. There are two things in there. One is I want to come back to the sci-fi reference to Mad Max. So I apologize to my listeners because he brought it up. So it's his own fault. And I'll come back to that one in a second. What was interesting in the something that you were talking about made me think about the fact that a lot of the AI that's being developed at the minute is is being developed in the US. And being American, um, I, I kind of know what it's like coming to Europe. And there is a point to this. But when I moved to the UK, everybody was much more cautious with their personal data and that kind of thing. And I never really understood that because being American, it just isn't as much of a thing. I just didn't really understand that sort of side of the cultural bit. And it wasn't until I'd been here for a while. And then I had talked to a few people and, you know, then I started to realize that obviously we had a whole world war over basically people's personal information. And that's how people were targeted to be round up and murdered you know, was based on things like their religion, their sexual orientation, that sort of thing. And so there's a there's a much there's a much more visceral connection to 
how personal data can be used in a bad way in Europe than there is in the US. And Americans, it literally just, uh, at least, you know, when I was there and I grew up there, we just never, ever had that connection because it's never happened in the US like that. And so it's a really great point. And I think it's something, it's one of those things where that's just something that someone in the US, in Silicon Valley, may not even really consider seriously. They go, they go, yeah, personal data. And they kind of, they tick the box because they're like, yeah, okay, I don't want somebody to have my credit card number because they might spend some money. But they don't think about somebody knowing what religion you are or something like that. You know, what 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 is your health information? Like, I never really understood, like, why does anybody care about your health information? But, you know, you could be singled out if at some point, and, and that has happened. There is a precedent for that happening in history. And, and so that's, that's one aspect of where I think it's it's quite interesting and that there are huge differences between cultures just because of experiences like that. The other thing was, right, Mad Max, you brought up Mad Max. So how do you see this playing out over time? So, you know, like you said, we're in sort of we're in a wild west situation at the minute. There's there's no real there are no real laws or any regulations around this. Everybody's just kind of doing whatever they want to do. So there's sort of three different directions this can go. There's the Star Trek version, which is that's the utopian peaceful society. You know, we we become technologically advanced. You know, computers and AI are around. We use it in our daily lives. There's no real need for money because Everything just gets essentially taken care of for you. There's the Mad Max version, which is society completely falls apart. You know, there's some sort of massive, you know, civil event or whatever. And, and you know, we end up back, you know, taking a few steps back in it and it's chaos. And then there's the Blade Runner view, which is kind of the mix where you've got, and my last guest, Keith, who I just spoke to and his podcast will be out soon, but or actually just came out today. But Keith was saying, you know, it's going to be like the thing where like rich people are going to have real pets and poor people will have AI pets. And, you know, there's, but, but it'll still be, you know, we'll still have some sort of society and there'll be computers and people still kind of get along, but you'll have this very big divide. So I'm curious to know where you think we might end up and that's a long-term question, obviously. That's that's not a 10-year question. That's a 100-year yeah, question. And I think and I believe the answer is not easy. And it will, it will all settle down. It's almost like, just think about plastic, right? What we're seeing today is AI pollution. That's what I call it, AI pollution. There are good, good okay good you know ai solutions and then there is proliferated ai pollution built on apis and chat gpts and generative ai stuff and that's what we're seeing it's it's so intense it's so proliferated and there's so much going on and when you go to use any ai product you just like you're taking a minute there like wait a minute which one do i use they all pretty much do the same thing. They're all calling APIs. Which one's protecting my data? Which one is compliant? Which one's regulated? We don't know. So going back to the plastic uh, example. So when plastic was almost invented and launched, everyone loved it. Everyone just jumped on it. 10 years down the line, there's plastic everywhere, right? It became people's and, and government's headache to clear this plastic. Now, one thing quite powerful from this lesson about plastic is plastic is a waste waste product from petroleum industry so what should have been regulated the petroleum industry should have been regulated at the first place not people uh, people ultimately realized oh right if i use this I'm, I'm killing my planet but who should have been regulated at the first place petroleum industry and the plastic manufacturers so we're seeing something similar with AI right now. And going back to the original question, will this stabilize? Uh, it will stabilize. And as probably I would, I would go, reference back to Keith, you know, there will be that 
trend of someone will use a plastic product, someone will use a timber product, and someone will use a glass product. And who can afford what? They will they will have that. So AI will have its place in this in the society. It's just a matter of time, five, ten years down the line, where where certain people will say, look, I prefer the authentic way of doing it. And it's gonna cost you the cost of an oak table is X. If you buy a plastic table, it's going to cost you that. So I think it's going to happen sooner or later that artist, for example, will say, look, I'm using AI. It's going to cost you 20 quid. If I use oil paint and my time, it's going to cost you two grand, right? So that that is is definitely on the roadmap. But I think the society will adapt to it. So it probably will be a bit of a hybrid of what Keith has said and also the, the the Star Trek world, the utopian world, in my opinion. But yeah, it's just it's just a matter of time. I'm hoping for Star Trek yes, personally. Same. <laughs> I think it'll end up as Mad Max. It's but... Mad Max right now. But yeah, we're hoping that we can get somewhere in between. I think it's Blade Runner All now. Right. Where we've got, you know, some people are doing it. We've got big divides in society. You know, we have, I think there's a lot of, you know, the, the gap between, I think we're losing the middle class. And I think what we're getting is we're getting a very high end and we're getting a, a lower low end. But how that then plays out at some point, you know, in the future will be interesting. I think it'll also, going back to the data privacy thing, I totally get it. But then I also, at the same time, I want a personal assistant that's an AI that knows everything about me. And that can do stuff for me and I can just like, it will know the things to do. It will know, it will renew my driver's license for me. It will take care of, it'll renew my passport. Like it'll do all the stuff and it'll tell me things that I need to do. Like it can be proactive and it can say, well, your, you know, your, your passport's due to be renewed in, in, you know, 12 months, you need to go get a picture and upload the picture and then I'll do the thing for you. And it can just take care of it for me. And, you know, it can, it can just help me. And I can say, look, I want to go to dinner. I want to, I want to go to an Italian place. Can you sort something out and send an invitation to my wife and like, and just have it do stuff, but it needs to know about me to do that. So, but at the same time, then you don't want that shared with anyone else. So how does how does it actually work? And I think that's kind of the holy grail. If I can have a small personal assistant that I can give all my data to, but that it won't share with anyone. I don't I don't know how that all works. I, but I I feel like we're still in that point where people want both. They want the best of both. They don't want anybody to know any of their information, but yet they want to have a tool that does know everything that will do everything for them. So I don't I don't know how that's gonna how that's going to play out. What do you see? I'm conscious of time. So we're um, a couple more questions and, and, and I'll, I'll let you go. What's the biggest risk that you see in the next sort of five to 10 years? Uh, first and foremost, I feel like Wesley snipes now. <laughs> try, try, trying to take the battle against the, the bad AI practices. Um, the biggest risk is, in my opinion, Going back to the term intelligence, intelligence is very core and intimate aspect of humanity and people and each and every one of us. Intelligence is what gives us our identity, defines us who we are, right? And and it's sometimes people don't understand what intelligence is. We take it for granted. We take it for granted to even cross the street that we, we, we put intelligence in place. When we farm and we grow some fruits and vegetables, there's an element of you know traditional packed learning experience intelligence in there that we take it for granted that we have it. Machines don't know. Machines don't know any of these basic things that we take it for granted. Driving, for example, hitting a ball, right? Or free kick. We take all of this for granted. So for me, I feel like the biggest risk is us giving away our core traditional intelligence that we have curated over centuries and decades for someone to be the best teacher or a taxi driver or be a manager or be a 
a technical architect, designer, it's not easy. They have to do this at least for thousands, thousands of hours over years to even be qualified. Now, if machines can do that in a in a second by just by a prompt, what are we going to do in 10 years down the line? So for me, that is the big question. So for me, it's, it's how the entire planet or, or society will shift in 10 years. And are we ready or are we aware and we and ready for the shift? PwCs and McKinsey's, they have published some huge, powerful statements saying 40% of the, you know, simple jobs will be automated, or 40% of yep. the jobs will be automated, right, by, by 2030. Yep. Yep. That's a very bold statement. And when you put in bold statements like that, as a corporate, you have an accountability. As a government, you have to look at that and like, wow, I have to do something about it. And also, as a people... If we know that 40% of jobs will be replaced, what are we going to do? So we have exactly. to think about where we will, be, we will be in 10 years down the line. So it's about that intelligence shift going back to the original thing. This is where I spend a lot of time on, on publishing, writing papers, and, and even publish a documentary film, which is the concept of public intelligence. So we need to become more aware of this concept we all understand what public data is, our personal data and public data. In a similar way, there is an element of people's intelligence that we do not understand or take it for granted. Just that awareness that we need to protect and be accountable of our intellectual shift. The biggest risk I see is, A, us, there is a generation here who could get directly impacted by it. And the other risk is the next generation, they would have no clue right what 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 are the basics of farming or or making perfect yep. steak or interacting with an animal the emotional side of things the creative side of things of art because all they're seeing is digital 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 right and the biggest risk of yep. the next generation is minute you go on aeroplane mode and there's no wi-fi you're you're thick as I'm not going to use any words there, but that's it. Without <laughs> Wi-Fi, you are not yeah, intelligent. Yeah, and that's yeah. the best risk. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you said that because I I talked to the guy who set up Pause AI. His thing was is is part of our conversation. He talked about that, and he was like, you know, if the internet went down, there would be you know societal unrest. And I was like, well, you do realize there's loads of people still alive who lived before the internet, and we know how to do stuff without the internet and without computers. And, and yes, it would be awkward, but we'd manage, yeah. you know, we, we did manage before, but I, I appreciate what you're saying is that we can do that now, but three generations from now or two generations from now, it'll be a lot more difficult because there'll be many fewer people who will have those. There'll still be people with those skills, but many fewer. So that's a, that's a great point. One sure. more question. And then I have a, a couple of really quick ones, but, so what what didn't we talk about that you think is important? Is there is there any other topic or something that we we haven't talked about so far that you think is worth bringing up? Not that I can think of, but I would say there's an element of responsible leadership that we all have on a personal level and also on a, on a business level. So we all have that accountability that within our personal life, within our family, and obviously, if you're running a business, to really embed and demonstrate an element of responsible leadership, which means going back to the five pillars that we need to be aware of, you know, how do we protect and respect human rights, understand when we move certain things from here to there, there is some consequences of shifting, moving things or creating some change. Simple as, you know, we launch a new iPhone. Poof, there's a there's a whole host of you know <laughs> issues with that, right? Yeah. So just being aware of this and and that education is currently missing. So the new moral code or new ethical requirement is something that we need to democratize. So I would say and I would urge all the all the audience that if you all understand these five principles of respecting human rights, understanding the intention of why we building certain things or causing this change. And if you are causing a change, how do we manage that? 
And if we are causing a change, there is a risk. Just thinking a bit more proactively about it. And lastly, being accountable. These five things really makes us responsible. And if we as an individual or a family owner or as a business owner, if we do that, it becomes a culture. So ethics should be a culture. It shouldn't be an afterthought. 100%. And keep listening to the podcast because this is literally why I started the podcast in the beginning where it's to raise these issues, but particularly around the creative industries. So, right, a couple of just very quick, easy questions for you. In your mind, is AI male or female? What's the voice you hear when you when you hear AI? Do you hear do you hear a male voice or a female voice? I I think I hear female voice. It's because maybe I'm biased. I I like to hear that. Interesting. Yeah. 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 No. Okay. Cool. That's good. And when you have an AI digital assistant that can do everything for you, what do you think you would name it? Hmm. Her. Her. Yeah. I guess since we uh, since we've established that she's it's female, I would call it Eliza, the first AI NLP engine that we had. So yeah, Eliza. Love it. Love it. Eliza, that's a great name. Cool. Sharon, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I, I, I genuinely believe that you've raised some really interesting topics and, and, and ideas for people to think about and to give people some context on how to think about AI. Do you want to get your plug in for your, uh, for your for your smart ethics bit and everything here at the end and people can go and check it out Absolutely. for themselves so the framework is open and accessible to everyone on smartethics.net and it is the five pillar that i mentioned which is built by looking at international standards framework and guidelines and really unifying it and making it easy and understandable for everyone Sustaining Sustain, what I mean by sustain, uh, ethics management process or methodology doesn't exist right now. So we have pioneered in that space, put a lot of effort and research to unify and converge all this confusion and make it simple and accessible for everyone to consume. Brilliant. And I'll put links and everything in the show notes anyway, so people will be able to find it afterwards. So thanks very much, Sharon. Pleasure. It was brilliant. Loved it. Thank Cheers. You. All right. Okay, folks, that's a wrap on another amazing episode of Creatives with AI. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you want to stay up to date on how all things related to AI is impacting the creative industries, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever your favorite platform is. We're on them all. And follow us on social media. We're on mainly Twitter and LinkedIn, but we're the same handle everywhere, which is at Creatives with AI. We'd also really appreciate it if you could just take a minute to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those are our two main platforms and it really helps other listeners find the show and it also helps us get more popularity and more exposure. So it'd be amazing if you could help us with that. If you've got any questions, topic suggestions, guest recommendations, feel free to send us an email. The best email is hello at creativeswith.ai. Or you can shoot us a message on social media. Either one is fine. We love hearing from all of you and we can't wait to bring more exciting episodes in the future. And the best way we can do that is to get feedback from the audience and have the audience tell us who it is you'd like to hear from and what things you'd like us to ask and what topics you'd like us to talk about. So please use that. Let us know what you want to hear and we'll do our best to get it for you. And last but not least, we'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Future Hand Limited, who make this podcast possible. Your support means the world to us and we really appreciate it. So thanks very much. That's it for today. So until next time, take care, everybody, and stay curious.